Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Danielle Cheel. She's a fashion lady, a former musicology student. She's an Aussie. And despite arriving in India and after two weeks swearing she would never, ever go back, a convoluted series of events, including changing prime ministers in Australia, put her in a position where she needed some people to help her do some hand knitting. And that sent her to India six years ago. Now she employs 200 women in India, full time, in her own premises, village by village. And she's on a mission to try and get to 10,000 people hand knitting fashion garments. She tells me the story of where it all began, day off sick, it's from school and time with her great aunt. Just great to hear the impact that she's having on the lives of rural India. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. My name's Danielle Cheel and I own a business, Coco, that stands for Knit One Garment, Change One Life. So I own a company here in Australia and a company in India and together we hand knit for fashion brands around the world. We find our knitters, I go into rural villages and find women who have never been to school before. And we give them full-time work. And the day they start working for us, we teach them maths, English and hand knitting and grow their physical skills, their emotional skills, their intellectual skills and all sorts of skills from the day that they start working for us. Absolutely fantastic. How did you end up? Where did it start? What What were you doing before this was a thing? I have a PhD in music theory analysis, like a musicologist. And this was a change of career in one way because it changed from the oral arts to the visual arts. But another way, it was exactly the same of turning an art into a science. Have you been in the, the fashion business before? or No. And one thing you'll get a bit of a laugh about is five years before I started this business, I actually went to India with my youngest son on a trip and both of us vouched and vowed that we would never step foot in that country ever again. (laughs) I'm like, I've traveled extensively my entire life and this is one country I will never come back to. Says I who boarded the plane to come back for my very Uh, first holiday trip to India. And so what was it about India that put you off that first trip? Everything that everybody says about India came true. <laughs> the weather, the rip-off, the waiting, the, just everything. It was shocking. It's like, who needs this on holidays? And what, how long were you there for? Well, the first time I went, I was up north, and I think it was two weeks or ten days. 
And then with the business, this is down south and you just can't compare. You just can't compare. So I fell in love with these ladies. So have you ever met somebody and you can't speak their language? Occasionally. Well, I go, we go to Spain quite a lot and quite often we, we might find ourselves in a rural restaurant in Spain and none of the people there speak a word of English and we speak no Spanish, even though we go to Spain on all day all the time. But then in Spain you have the internet and you can use Google Translate, so... Yeah, and somehow or other you just get yourself understood, right? So you make eye contact, first of all, and that's sort of step one. And if it works, you go to step two. So you look at these people in the eye and think, I would like to have a conversation with you. And then what happened was they actually just took me by the hand and walked me around their village. And it was really clear to me what they were saying. You know, this is where I live. This is my mother. This is my father. This is whatever. And unbeknown to me, while somebody had my hand walking around the village, somebody else had run off to try and find somebody who could speak English. And the translator came back. And from that minute on, we were on. The communication started. And so that was when you were, that's when you went back the next time to, to set up your business? Yes. How did you end up with this idea for your business? Oh, I didn't wake up with this idea at all, ever, actually. Um, <laughs> it's one big total morph that just sucked me down a rabbit hole. So ever since I was a little girl, I just loved colour and texture. I loved knitting. I was taught to knit when I was 10 years old. I was home from school sick with the, and I don't remember whether it was chicken pox or measles, and my mother was a working mother and she called her aunt, my great aunt, ironically, her name was Pearl, Auntie <laughs> Pearl, my great aunt Pearl. And uh, she taught me how to knit while my mother was at work on that day when I was home sick. And I was probably home from school a week. And I remember that day when my mother came home from work and you know, says, what would you do today? And I held up what I'd knitted with great joy. And then the next day she stopped at would have been the local haberdashery store and bought home one ball of wool in every colour that that store sold and gave it to me. And I was a child in heaven. It's like, you know, when you were given your first set of colouring in pencils, Yeah. you know, with 72 colours in or whatever, as a little girl, you just look at those. I don't know if boys would have the equivalent or if boys are into multicoloured pencils, but I used to just look at that in awe. So I did the same with these wools. I played with them. I arranged them. I knitted them all into a square. Um, at that point in time, I obviously had the kind of brain that could do the math so that they all just turned out the right size because I promise you there was no calculations done. And so the next time when I was better and I saw my great aunt, I had all this bundle of squares. So everyone was knitted in a different stitch and a different colour. And she sewed it together for me and turned it into a blanket. And I took it to school to show everyone, look what I made. And I went to a girl's private school and it was actually in awe. It's like I won the needlework prize and I was just hooked. I loved it from then. <laughs> and then in grade eight, I asked my mother if I could leave my posh girl's private school to go to a state school to study fashion. And if looks could kill, I learned never to ask that question again. So I went to university and did a real career, made her happy. But that absolute love of knitting and colour and texture never went away. So 
I just wanted to do something with that. And I never wanted to be one of these people six foot under and thought I always wish I had, but so I changed careers. I left music and opened a brand that, or a hand knitting store actually in Brisbane in Australia. And one thing just led to another. And then I sold that and I opened up my own hand knitted label and then Australia changes its prime minister every 40 seconds. So then we had a prime minister that made it not legal to employ contract workers in the fashion industry. So then I had to close all that down after doing all that. And I met somebody in India, somebody introduced me to someone in India and it just all started. So as I said, I just got sucked because I'd always wanted this brand in hand knitting. I started in Australia and I'm like, Oh, I either go back to my old career or, shut these desires down and neither of those were an option so I just kept going who wears the clothes they make uh, lots of brands so we knit for lots of brands um I can't actually say we have really tight confidentiality okay. rules and lots of people don't want us to say who knits for them but you would have heard of some of the brands and we knit for lots of UK brands Australian brands brands in Europe well-known ones not so well-known ones they send us, you know, their designs and we have yarn or they send us the yarn and we knit the garments and send them back. And do none of your brands, do they feel that they would be, they don't want to expose their supply chain to their competitors or they don't want people to know that women in India are hand knitting their garments or? Probably all of the above. Like we've had brands that said, oh my God, we're going to lose our made in Europe status. So we have swing tags on our garments that if somebody wants them, you know, you can scan a QR code and go to our website and learn about the person that knitted your garment. But the consumer wants that, but not too many brands want that. It's kind of not their image. Ah, okay. If you're a high-end runway brand. But look, I think that day will change and slowly more and more brands will want to know who made their garment. But... We're probably the only place in the world that I know of that there's lots of hand knitting places, but I think we're one of the only ones that actually people come to work to a specific designated building or buildings because we have them in every village that we enter and they're paid a full-time wage. Okay, so tell me, tell me how, how does the business work in India then? You've got villages, your own location, people full-time and you said you, you teach people maths and English. So it feels as though you've, you're doing loads more than you could. And, and certainly some of your competitors aren't, aren't doing that. So what's the genesis of that? Why do you do it? Why does it work for you? Well, you know, I met these ladies. They couldn't speak or read. And they could, the first 10 that I met actually could knit. And I'm like, if I'm going to get any mileage out of this, they have to be able to do maths. They have to be able to read. So the whole business was built on, I think it's four opposites. Yes, no, up, down, same, different, back, front. <laughs> and they got those words. And I built the whole business around those words. And gradually, you know, some people can have pretty great conversations with us now over the years. It's been six years, you know, teaching them algebra and just go step by step because they are all, they're really keen. They're really lovely ladies. They want to learn more. They always want to do the right thing. Um, and we can't promote them unless they learn more. So we do our best. 
how do you pick a village? Does it has it grown organically? Yeah, it has grown organically, and we pick a village by simply asking the ladies. They do all their um, employment and all of that. Like they say to me, Danielle, I don't think this girl should work for us. I don't like her, you know, her family, blah blah blah. And I'm like, okay. Um, it just seemed it, it shouldn't be so easy, really. But and then I'm like, is there any more people that can come from this village? And if we've got forty or fifty, like no. I'm like, okay. So where's the next idea? Where's the next closest village? And they're like, leave it with me. Then the next visit I'd go, you know, they'd take me to three different places and I'd be like, none of these are suitable. What other ideas have you got? And then they just keep taking me around until we find one. And I'm like, this is great. Let's start here. So that's how we find them. It's, it is organic. You've got a, the, that 200 people that you now have, you've got a management team above them in India doing, doing all of your day-to-day management of the teams on site yes and the people running that for you are are they some of the people that you met six years ago uh some of them are um that have grown up with the company and some of them we've actually especially recently as we're growing and we want higher and higher standards um we've placed ads with employment agencies in india and their first stipulation is must be able to speak fluent English because their version of English and my version of English is like just holds apart. <laughs> Some of them now speak very good English. I was doing a bit of reading online about some of the blog posts you've written about some of your trials and tribulations of getting the business off the ground. Take me back six years ago. How, how hard was this? How, how difficult was it? What are some of your... Some of your best stories around setting the business up. <laughs> One of the things I've learned since being in India is everybody I know, like in the last week I've been told this three times. It's like, Danielle, you are the most resilient person I've ever met. So I never knew that I was resilient. So I just do my thing. I'm just me and I do my thing. So the first time I was there and I realised I needed an accountant, I just walked the streets of Pondicherry. I went into every sign that said accountant. And when I found one that I could have a conversation with, I just said, this is what I want. So I literally found them off the street. And so maybe four months later, I'm like, oh, my God, this is a disaster. How did you do this? I have to find another one. (laughs) So somebody would introduce me to another one or I'd just keep walking the streets until I find one. But, you know, like all trials and tribulations, Every time, well, I don't know if this is most people, but every time we move accountants, every time we employ people, you just get better and better at it. Like of knowing what you want, interviewing people. It's been a huge journey, Dom, huge. And do you get support from, I don't know, the state, the national government? Is there, does anybody, does anybody care or people in your way? It's not an NGO. So they're not about to send money my way as much as I'd love that. It's a for-profit business. You know, we don't make any money yet, but it's not, a, it's not an NGO and it never will be. And it's my little mission to actually show the world that hand knitting can be commercialised and we can change the face of fashion through hand knitting and just impact a lot of people. That I remember doing a course where they said choose three words for your brand and the ones I chose was experience connect and transform so you know we just connect the end user with the person who made it and in the process it changes both their lives what's the scope of this do you think how big does it get is it do you have a goal is it 
Yeah, I do have a goal and it's a matter of like how long will I live? I'm a middle-aged woman. <laughs> I wish I was 40 or 30. Uh, I just think we've got a lot of customers that are really, really interested in our services and we just can't grow big enough, fast enough. Like when I first started for the business, I said I'd like to employ 40,000 women because at that stage it took us a month to knit a jumper and I had a training course to put them through that took seven months. Now it takes us seven days to knit a jumper and we teach them how to knit in three days. So I guess my first goal is to have a 1,000 women uh-huh. then 5,000 and 10,000. Um, there's plenty of ladies to employ in India and it's my aim to grow it really big because we can change the lives of a lot of people and through the years, the longer I'm doing it, the more you can see the ladies change. It's sort of like a Cinderella ugly duckling story. They come to me and then a few years later, like they carry themselves so differently and they mature and it's like it's actually quite rewarding to watch. So the longer I'm in it, the more I get sucked in it. If for want of a better term, I just can't help myself. So I just want to do it more and more and more, really. So if anybody ever listens to this and would like to support us, you know, if you're a fashion brand, you can give us an, an order to knit for your brand. But if you're a consumer at Christmas time, we've started knitting Christmas decorations for everybody. So on our website, cococo.global. Um, send me an email and we'd love to supply any corporate company with Christmas decorations to gift their staff. Um, last year we, we sold out of our Christmas decorations. I think we sold a thousand and that helped start another village. So, you know, that's how we use the money. We just reinvest into the ladies. That's fantastic. Do you have any, do you have any, so Christmas decorations, jumpers, can you extend out? Is there, are there other things that you can do? Do you sell direct as well? The B2B is to the fashion brands and the B2C is the Christmas decorations. Okay. So, you know, anybody who wants to buy a Christmas decoration hat can. And, you know, within the next two years, we'll have B2C jumpers, like I'll have my own brand there. But at the moment, that's, that's what we do. Do you get any pushback from the men in the village? Because it must change the dynamics in the village. Yeah, we do. We do change the dynamics. We break the economic cycle. We break the education cycle. We break so many cycles while we're there. Look, I'd be naive to say that the answer is no, that we don't get pushback from men. Like I have been, everybody tells me like, Danielle, you're the blunt one. So to the woman through a translator, I'd be saying like, who am I actually employing here? You or your husband? Um, So they try to be quite influential but at the end of the day I'm quite strict about that and my job is to look after the ladies sometimes I've had to talk to the husbands like what would you like how can we help you conversations that go like that but basically I'm just focused on the ladies that we employ and what I call the girls side of it there's only so many hours in a day and it is a for-profit business so we're there for the ladies and what happens to the daughters of the women you employ Do you get a sort of a cascade benefit for that? Well, they have like daughters and sons and the women are just so happy that their children can go to school. Out of the women that we employ, there are some that have never, ever been to school. There are some that have been to school up to, I guess it's grade five or six, age 10. We do have some that have gone to high school and finished at, well, what's year 10 in Australia, you know, 14 years old. Um, so we we kind of have the full spectrum across that. 
but they really love it that they can pay for their children to have a firm education and go a long way. Like one of the things I really like about the ladies and I really like about this work is at the end of the day, they're no different to you and I. They just want a good quality life. They want good quality life for their children. They want children to have opportunities that they didn't have. And I actually believe by wearing the jumpers and me selling the jumpers, we can have that happen. I've had a great life and I think that I can impart to those ladies how to have an equally great life. And have you taken your son back with you on subsequent trips? Or is he still, or is he still scarred? Is he still scarred? <laughs> He's pretty scarred, but I'm sure within the next three years they'll come, both boys. I've got two sons. One's 30 and one's 28. And every time I ask them to become, they're like, Mum, we only have four weeks holiday a year. Do we have to spend it doing this for you? <laughs> and I'm like, not this year, but perhaps one year it would be really nice. So, you know, that'll happen, but it's not at the top of their priority. So you said, you know, from your perspective, huge difference in the north and the south of India. And so if people are thinking of going to India, where should they go? The thing about India is that it wasn't so long ago, every state speaks a different language. There were different tax laws in every state. It's so contrasting. And it's like all experiences in all countries. You know, you can go to Australia and go to Ayers Rock and it's totally different to going to Tasmania and Cairns. And India is a land of contrast and it's, you know, there's so many choices and it depends what you like as an individual, really. Okay. So knowing, knowing what you know now, if you went back in time, is there anything you, you look back and go, I wish I'd known that then? That's so funny. Absolutely everything. (laughs) (laughs) Everything. (laughs) Absolutely everything. Like there's not one thing I don't do on a daily basis that I'm like, oh my God, there's a reason that I had to wait for I was so old to pull this off because I couldn't have had the skills when I was like a few decades younger. Like every day I just learned so much about the business myself about the Indian ladies, I mean, working with them has taught me an enormous, it's an equal two-way street. They've benefited hugely, but I've learned a huge amount about myself and hopefully between them and me, we can share it with the world. And dare I be so corny to say, you know, through hand knitting. I gave a talk recently and the opening line was, imagine if hand knitting was the language for global communication. And there's no reason why it can't be. Having been to India a couple of times myself, I just, I'm just thinking what, what an amazing impact you'd be having on, on those villages. And, and as you say, breaking, breaking all of those cycles and helping change lives, really. Fantastic. Um, what, are there any books that you've read along the way that have inspired you? Yeah, I go through phases of reading. Um, sometimes I read every book that's on business or psychology out there than personal growth that I can get my hands on. The blunt and the short of it is over the last 12 months, I'm so exhausted from doing this. It's like as I'm really trying to rapidly expand, I don't actually have a lot of spare time, like as in literally 30 seconds to read. So 
you know, I'm sorry to be a dampener here. I haven't probably read a book myself in the last year, but I'm forever going to business networking and business courses to grow how to communicate, how to tighten systems, how to communicate with people without speaking, like to do it visually in India. Um, so that if you don't know the language, you can still work for us so that all communication is by pictures and visual things. I was very fortunate and had an experience with, you know, Richard Branson on Necker Island. So I read all of his business books. I've read lots of business books along the way and all of them contribute something. And I'm really sorry. I don't have a name at the top of my head, really. Um, my son's reading one at the moment called Breaking Habits. And we discuss that every night about habits that I've got that need to be changed to grow India habits that they've got that we can unfold. So I personally spend probably all my time thinking, changing, reading, learning about stuff like that to grow the business. What habits do you need to change? Oh, there's so many. I'm very <laughs> impatient. <laughs> it's like, I just told you to do this. Can you just do it now, please? <laughs> I think a habit that I've developed in India is to be really, really blunt. It's like, no. Is this the same? No. So one of the habits that I need to change is not to speak to people around me like that anymore. It's like, is that right? No. <laughs> it kind of doesn't work when you're in the West, when you're not quite so soft and gentle and loving. It's like, well, it's almost right. But if you just tried this, so my language has changed a lot since working there. So, you know, like everybody, I've got a million bad habits and a million good ones. Brilliant. Danielle, thank you very much indeed for your for your time talking to me today. It's been fantastic. I wish you I wish you and the business all the very best. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.